We are going to start today, however, with a conversation with Sripati Acharya, Managing Partner of Priven Advisors, which advises Prime Venture Partners. So the conversation will be about Prime Venture Partners. Sripati, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Shimna. It's a pleasure. So uh, let's get acquainted. Let's get our audience introduced to you as well as to Prime. Uh, sure. So uh, Prime is an early stage uh, tech venture fund out of uh, Bangalore, India. That's our office. And we invest in uh, companies which are uh, probably the first institutional tech. Uh, if I can actually make a comparison, it's probably like first round capital uh, in, uh, in the Valley. And we are, so almost always we are the first institutional check in the company. Our goal is to uh, support and uh, build companies uh, which have a core tech uh, value proposition and uh, as, as the center of their differentiation and their product offering. Uh, we can go that go into uh, that a bit more uh, during the course of our conversation. But as, uh, as for me, I, um, I grew up here in India. I spent uh, 20 years in the U.S. Uh, was. Uh, at Cisco, I was the co-founder of a company called Snapfish, which is one of the early players in uh, online photos. Uh, then I moved to India about 10 years back, uh, worked, uh, among other things, at Aadhaar, uh, which is, as a volunteer, which is uh, India's biometric identification system, or the largest such, uh, probably the largest such uh, uh, system in the world, and I had an opportunity to work there for uh, uh, a year or a year and a half, and after that, uh, we started along with my partners, uh, Prime Ventures. So, um, you said you work in core tech. How big is the fund? Yeah, so our current fund is uh, seventy million, uh, Shamana. And um, how do you define core tech? Are you doing core tech in the B two B context, or core tech in both B two B and B two C? What is the Double-click down on that for a moment for us. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably like uh, the wrong word in the one sense that tech is sort of pervading all aspects of um, uh, of our lives. And yeah. so what I meant to really say, I should clarify that where tech is driving a core part of the value proposition of the product, is it uh, how you're scaling is, uh, is tech-oriented, uh, it could be anything from B2B to answer your specific question wherein it is enterprise SaaS. Uh, it could be uh, a B2C where uh, the value proposition, uh, where the acquisition is digital, where the service is delivered uh, digitally as well. Uh, mm -hmm. So what we don't do probably is an easier question to answer, to, uh, to clarify that. What we don't do is pure uh, consumer uh, branding, where the offline retail, I mean, all of these areas are in India are actually growing uh, as fast, sometimes faster than many of the tech areas. Uh, but mm -hmm. those are not areas in which uh, we participate, primarily because that's just not our DNA of the uh, of the partners. Uh, okay. So the partners have a very operating DNA, and we think that for us to be, uh, uh, you know, for it to be meaningful for us to partner with uh, uh, with startups. Uh, it has to be something which we are passionate about and where we can add value. Let's also uh, double-click down on your uh, comment about writing the first check, the first institutional investors. So, you know, I'm sure you're following what's happening globally in the venture ecosystem, especially in the seed 
stage, there's been a lot of fragmentation and segmentation going on, and people are even specializing within seed, in pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, small series A, <laughs> big series A, and then <laughs> they have their own definitions of each of those. So, so <laughs> in trying to understand what is your comfort zone, I guess the question that I usually ask uh, investors is, what do you want to see by way of validation? What is the what what do entrepreneurs need to bring to you for you to want to invest in them stage wise? Uh, yeah, so I think really two part question there. So on to your first one, which is uh, you know we have just so many uh, classes of uh, funding rounds now. In one sense, it's uh, uh, it looks fairly uh, confusing and somewhat meaningless to actually say uh, you know what really does seed mean. Uh, so it's probably better to talk about in terms of the ticket sizes. I think it, uh, that clarifies our a typical median ticket size might be around a million dollars. But if it is a company which is really, and we have invested in the napkin stage, the prototypical napkin stage, then it's obviously going to be a lot lesser. But if it's a company which has uh, a product, the demonstrator adoption, and probably a reasonably uh, a good product market fit, uh, then obviously it deserves a, uh, uh, deserves a higher ticket size and, and valuation. So in that sense, you know, I would call us uh, seed, uh, seed investors, uh, because many a time uh, companies which come to us uh, would be funded by uh, angels, for example. They might have had a friends and family round, they might have a small angel round. Uh, but the reason we say first institutional check is that uh, we are fairly comfortable with ambiguity in the company. So this kind of like dovetails into your second second part of your question, uh, which is really uh, what what are we looking for? Uh, so first and foremost, really we are looking for uh, a thesis from the entrepreneur side, a conviction on what they are trying to build, uh, which exhibits a 10x insight. Uh, and by 10x insight, I mean it could be 10x in terms of the value proposition from just from the price point of the product. It could be 10x in terms of how the product is going to get distributed uh, out to the uh, to their consumers and customers. We are looking for, a, uh, or it could even be a target segment which has really not not been addressed at all. Uh, it could be uh, a completely negative, neglected area of the market. So any of those things we are actually very comfortable with. So we are not necessarily looking for analogs like, okay, has this been done in the U.S. or has this been done in China uh, when we are investing. Uh, but what we are looking for is uh, that this is solving a problem in our point of view, uh, a real problem with a, with a 10x inside. That's one. Uh, the second thing we are looking for, uh, and which, which all, uh, all VCs will talk about, is the quality of the team. And that's really an uh, entrepreneur uh, opportunity fit uh, in one sense, which you're talking about. So it could be a great idea, but why you? And I think that I really encourage all entrepreneurs to answer that question for themselves. Uh, uh, what is your unfair uh, advantage? Is, exactly, right? And I think the unfair advantage could be, uh, and quite often it is, hey, this is a problem I have myself faced. Uh, and those tend to be actually quite interesting, and in my opinion, some of the best companies where the entrepreneur herself has actually faced this problem and she's passionate about, about solving it. Uh, that's one. Uh, usually that's good but not enough is what I would say because you need to also have an insight about how to solve that problem. And it is really great when uh, we have a point of view. So as a, as a firm, we will have a thesis about a particular space. So for example, we are very active in FinTech. 
So we have a thesis around how this space operates. Uh, but I often say that the best uh, entrepreneurs will come and debunk about 20% of your understanding of that space uh, and say, hey, look, let me tell you why you're wrong uh, on, mm -hmm. on this particular area. Uh, and that is the conviction and the insight and able to prove that. And that usually is, we tried this, this worked, but not as good as what I'm about to tell you. And this is why this makes more sense. Uh, and so that's the, uh, that's the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur market fit. Uh, the, uh, and I might add here in terms of being specific that single founders are hard companies to fund, uh, not because uh, you know, they cannot pull it off, but just what we have found that uh, you know, even when there are overlapping skills, ideally you have at least a couple of co-founders and with uh, complementary skills, but even with overlapping skills, uh, having a co-founder makes for better decisions. We actually look for ideally uh, you know, at least two co-founders. And then finally is the market size. And this is something which, as investors out of India, our companies uh, can, be, uh, can have uh, markets in India, they can have markets globally, actually increasingly uh, companies very quickly branch out of, uh, out of their geography uh, and create global companies, especially uh, in certain areas like B2B and enterprise SaaS. Uh, but we do look for the market sizing from a bottom-up perspective. Like how do you construct yeah. the market size bottom-up? Uh, and those are the three things which uh, um, which we are looking for. So you don't necessarily need to see any product in place. You don't necessarily need to see customer traction. You're willing to, if the team, the market size, and the conviction and the concept you resonate with, you're willing to do concept financing is what I'm hearing you say. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. and. Uh, so some of the some of the most interesting companies actually do turn out that way. Uh, of course, there is a higher yes. risk and higher mortality uh, when you do that. Uh, but I think that uh, when the markets are expanding, uh, you know, it is. Uh, uh, I, I don't know how to express this, but when the insight is there, you really get an, this aha moment. And say, so, you know what? I really didn't think about it that way. And of course, at that point, you would like to look for proxies to validate what they are saying is correct by talking to their potential customers or any, uh, uh, and seeing whether this value proposition yeah. makes sense. So that doesn't mean that we wouldn't want to validate it. Uh, but we are perfectly comfortable writing concept state checks, yes. Yeah, very good. That's uh, unusual these days, and, and it's, uh, it's good that you're doing that. So um, geographically, you're, you're focused on companies that are born in India, yeah? Uh, so we are focused where the entrepreneurs are here, um, and I think that's correct. So they are uh, uh, you know, India-based companies, but frequently the entrepreneurs will move to where their market is forced. Right. Uh, but the reason we want uh, India-based uh, companies really is more what you know Don Valentine when he uh, started Sequoia said, right? Which is he ideally would like uh, to cycle to his company. Uh, uh, that's what he says, right? And the reason is that when you're investing in early stage you really need to have that uh, uh, lots of interactions and an understanding of who the entrepreneurs are. Uh, and that is very difficult, even with all the best video conferencing uh, software we have. It's really need, it's not quite the same as uh, a face-to-face -face interaction. So that is the reason why uh, we think that it's very important to have uh, a close proximity to entrepreneurs. Of course, uh, as the company grows, the markets grow, and uh, then they have to be close to the close to the customers. And many of our companies do move. 
And uh, does that mean that you are you're based in Bangalore, yeah? That's correct. So uh, do all the companies then need to be in Bangalore? That's a fair point. Actually, most of our. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, yeah, we couldn't. We can't possibly cycle within Bangalore itself, given the state of our roads. But, That's true. Um, <laughs> so, uh, what I would say is that most of our uh, companies are in Bangalore. That is correct. Uh, we do have portfolio companies in Delhi, uh, and uh, so it is. Uh, you know, it is more effort really uh, to do that, and we have to make that extra effort. But doing that across time zones in uh, in different countries is just adds a layer of complexity, which is. Uh, uh, which we think uh, we are not suited to uh, to take. Okay, very good. So now I would like to do a few examples of your of companies that you've invested in and are particularly uh, excited about, and especially just to understand how you're thinking about these companies when they came to you. What did they have? How did you encounter them? And in what state did you encounter them? And what is it about them that really convinced you that yes, this is these guys are going to do it, and we're going to write checks? So let's do maybe one, two, three, whatever uh, number of case studies, and and see how how you think about companies. Sure. So um, let's take uh, one company. It's called uh, Credex, K R E D X. Uh, and what Credex does is that uh, it is an invoice discounting marketplace. So when companies work with smaller companies work with enterprises, say I am a, a supplier of laptops to Cisco, right? Yeah. So Cisco might give me a uh, there is a uh, invoice is generated. Cisco has approved that invoice, but they might pay me after 90 days because those are the payment terms of Cisco. Yeah. Um, and but however, being a small SMB, I might just be a distributor of these computers, for instance. Uh, I would like to have a faster cash flow cycle. So yeah. what uh, happens is, and this is a very standard thing, it's called invoice discounting. So you take a $10,000 invoice and say, hey, look, I'm willing to take, if I get the money now, uh, $9,500 $9, for that. I'm just, just picking some numbers. Uh, and so that's called invoice discounting. And this has traditionally been done entirely within banks, and uh, like there will be some back rooms where uh, this is being done. What Credex has done is bring, uh, brought it to retail. So I, as an uh, individual investor, can go and participate in this marketplace and buy invoices of, of companies which are going to list it in the uh, in the Credex marketplace. So that was the basic thing. Uh, but to come back to like uh, your question about uh, about why we invested and the stage mm -hmm. we invested in, the stage we invested in was uh, there are two entrepreneurs and they have this idea, uh, really, uh, and they had a very good detailed understanding of this idea. The product wasn't there. Uh, they were thinking about some mock-ups about this product and so forth. But they both had deep domain understanding of banking. They spent 10 years mm -hmm. in banking uh, each. And they said, let, me, let us explain to you how this thing works. Because I was like, okay, what is this? Uh, and I've heard about it, but I really don't have an idea. And even though we are in FinTech. And then they, they explained the whole concept with us. And we, ha we felt that they had a really deep understanding of this. And a very clear understanding of how they are going to go to market. So that was a paper napkin stage, uh, stage investment. Uh, now it is the largest uh, invoice discounting platform in the country, uh, and uh, you know we were delighted with it. And also a category creating company, uh, and in terms of being the first to market with this, uh, this idea uh, in India, so that that was uh, that was one. Uh, in general, like having that's why we are talking about entrepreneur uh, opportunity fit 
And this is one of those cases where this is such an involved and intricate financial product that unless you have actually worked with it, even if you are coming out from the smartest tech schools, this is not something which you, uh, you'll be able to figure out. Uh, so, you, you know, the domain expertise does matter. Uh, another company, uh, feel free to interrupt me here, Shaman. I think you think that uh, uh, I should talk about uh, more. I can go on and on about our companies. Uh, another company is a company called, uh, uh, called Quizzes. Uh, it is spelled as Q-U-I-Z-I-Z-Z, Quizzes. So here is a company which has uh, based in Bangalore. They have an office in, uh, in the U.S., but they're entirely addressing the U.S. education market. So what Quizzes provides is a platform for uh, the problem they are solving is that for teachers, it takes 10 times the amount to create a quiz than it takes for students to solve it, basically. Mm-hmm. So it might take them an, you know, an hour, hour and a half to create a 10-minute quiz. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it is a fairly uh, uh, significant ta- uh, you know, tax on the, on the teachers. So what Quizzes provides is a, is a crowdsourced quizzing repository where all different teachers all across, and their main market is the U.S., but they are all over the world, have gone ahead and uh, in one sense, the quizzes which they have created, they have contributed to the, uh, uh, to the quizzes platform. And any teacher can come and then go uh, pick up and create their own quiz. Say yeah. for, you know, if you want to teach algebra for class, for grade six, you can go ahead and just pick and choose and compile this quiz very easily and then administer it. Uh, to their students. And so uh, now it's going really fast. Uh, it's in a, around 30% of U.S. schools uh, doing some 300 million questions a, a month. So very, very large scale, but entirely done, uh, you know, out of, from, mostly out of India. They have an office in the U.S. as well. But it's a small team. And uh, what we really liked about it is that uh, it was actually making the lives of the teachers better and in one sense, also helping the students in the, in the process, because students could go back and they could retake that quiz and understand which are the areas are different. Anyway, so that was another one. What again, you're the problem uh, on this one, Triple So the problem which they are solving is that they are providing a platform for teachers to quickly create and administer a quiz in the classroom. Yeah, I got that. What is the business model? So the business model here is actually going to the parent base, uh, right? So uh, now the uh, students are beginning to do their quizzes from home uh, to, uh, to start their own quizzes because they want to practice. And so this is, so in education, you can do only two ways, right? You can either charge the teachers or you can charge the parents uh, for, uh, for this. And uh, this is a great way for uh, quizzes now, uh, quizzes a company, to uh, go ahead and monetize the parent um, you know, through the through a monthly subscription to the platform, something like that. So, so my decision is just the process is beginning now. Uh, so they came to us when, in this particular case, they actually had the product. Uh, they had the product, and they were seeing very, very initial. Uh, they might have had maybe a hundred thousand questions in total solved on the platform. Uh, today, they are a billion questions solved on the platform over that. But they came to us uh, when they had maybe launched it for a month this particular thing. Mm-hmm. But what we really liked about it is that they really had a visceral understanding and a connect with the teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they really understood... Did they have a teaching what... background? No, they didn't. So this is the interesting thing. Uh, and so that's why, yeah, you know, what I realized is that 
uh, the best way to approach a company and a, and a startup and the entrepreneurs is to be not really prejudiced about it uh, because you end up learning something. In this case, there are yeah. two uh, folks with deep technical backgrounds, uh, you know, at Amazon and similar companies, uh, but somehow they are just nuts about education. So they've gone ahead and created a game about, uh, about math wherein there were wizards who were going and killing demons and things like that, uh, which had a lot of, um, uh, um, lot of traction. But the challenge was that how do you keep continuously creating content? So yeah. then they actually crowdsourced the content creation and suddenly they had a, you know, essentially infinitely scalable model. Uh, but they had the same connect with the teachers and the students, which is uh, let's actually make the uh, uh, teaching better. So that's how yeah. uh, this whole thing came about. So in a situation like that, when you're evaluating an investment opportunity, um, the monetization, this one, not the previous one, this one, the monetization yeah. is unproven and it's a thesis, it's a hypothesis. You're assuming yeah. that parents are going to pay. How much of that kind of risk are you willing to take? So that is actually the hardest kind of risk to take. I think that's a very uh, uh, spot on your question uh, about that because what you're taking is a business model risk. Yeah. Uh, and the business, business model risks are hard because it's out in the future and, you know, uh, it's like shooting at a, at a bullseye and you're like with a, with a rifle, but you're like a kilometer away. Uh, so it, uh, it is a higher degree of risk. And to the extent possible, we, might, we wouldn't want to, we need to have at least some idea about uh, some evidence that this, this thing could work. But in this particular case, uh, that, was a, uh, um, uh, that was a risk which we took. And we felt that the way in which they were acquiring uh, you know, folks who were uh, increasingly using their platform demonstrated a deep insight about how to work with teachers and how to uh, deliver value to students. And if you build it, we'll, they will come. basically that will figure out a, a viable way in which uh, the users would be able to uh, do it. Uh, and I think that that's a risk we continue to have, right? I think that until there's sufficient monetization uh, with any of any such company, uh, you know, as uh, as a risk capital, I guess we just have to uh, just sort of take it. I think uh, what I'm observing in your uh, in the way you're talking about your investments is that you have actually more risk appetite than many of your peers, which is interesting because, uh, you know, <laughs> as you know, in your business, everybody wants to do things that are already proven and validated to a large degree, including paying customers. So, um, so I think as a, because of your mindset, you may be able to bring to fruition innovation that cannot be proven so quickly. It will take a bit of time to prove certain amount, build out certain amounts of certain types of innovation and monetize and so forth. So it's, it's, it's good that you're, uh, you have that appetite. Um, now, I'm going to switch the line of questioning a little bit to what is your philosophy about how much capital are you comfortable with um, a company or a concept needing to become successful? Because we are in an era where there is this unicorn chasing going on with companies flushed with capital and on the one extreme and then income soft bank and flushes the companies with more capital and, and, and some of the early stage investors exit and so on and so forth. Even the entrepreneurs often exit part of their holdings in those rounds. On the other extreme are 
investors who recognize the fact that you can build companies very capital efficiently today and um, more, more applying the bootstrapping principles and in some cases bootstrapping to exit opportunities are arising where you make a very, very good return on certain investments as long as you build them in a capital efficient manner. Um, you know, most of the enterprise exits, if you talk about the enterprise software world, most of those exits happen in the sub 50 to 60 million exit price range. So to make money off those kinds of exits, that means that you're going to have to build these companies for under $5 million, $10 million. So where in this, you know, continuum do you sit from your philosophy point of view and how much money do your companies, uh, or do you like your companies to need? Uh, so I think that uh, from a, uh, so it's very easy at least, uh, see, uh, folks like SoftBank are like funding companies which are much, much later stage. So it's really a growth capital. And uh, so, uh, you know, just a different, a different philosophy and a different uh, way of evaluating those opportunities. Uh, much more financial in, uh, uh, you know, analysis at that point. The point that we come in, uh, we are looking for, you know, what is it that you need to get to the next stage? And it's super important to not overcapitalize the company uh, for a couple of reasons. One, of course, I mean, these are things which entrepreneurs, which venture capitalists, and I don't know if entrepreneurs really believe it or not, uh, but I was talking yesterday to an entrepreneur who was actually talking exactly about, uh, about why they actually turned down raising a lot of money. And I think it is, the one is that the structure of the company changes. Uh, once if you raise 10 million instead of three, uh, let's say. Uh, and, and because sometimes there are opportunities like that because you have a oversubscribed round. Uh, there is a lot yeah. of interest in a particular area. And so now you have, um, uh, you get uh, overcapitalized companies. So one, immediately the cost structure of the company changes instantly uh, because the entrepreneur in one sense is obligated that they need to be spending that or investing that money in order to provide returns. And entrepreneurs would also be asking you to sit on that uh, capital for years together that, hey, what are you doing with that? Uh, so uh, it leads to a greater cost structure. So we feel that that's one. And the second thing is that it reduces the innovation within the company. I especially feel it for companies, for example, in uh, let's take a B2B case, like an enterprise SaaS. When you're starting out in enterprise SaaS, if you just like overfund the company, the first thing you'll go and do is even without actually understanding, uh, you, know, you know, completely building the product, you start hiring sales. And the thing is that uh, when, once you do that, uh, your cost structure instantly shoots through the roof uh, because you can spend a lot of money before product market fit very, very quickly yeah. because you're actually not getting revenue. Product market fit. Sorry? Salespeople cannot achieve product market fit. Product market fit has to be engineered by the entrepreneurs with very deep conversations with a select group of customers. Bringing in salespeople early is completely useless. Absolutely. I think we see those kinds of mistakes occur. So we think that uh, capitalizing a company from 18 to 24 months of runway with the first six, 12 months, like actually being very, very frugal, very frugal, even if you have a lot of money in the bank, uh, or until you get product market fit. And it's one of those things that customers, you know, entrepreneurs sometimes ask, how do I know there's product market fit? You really do know when there's product market fit because you just start running out of uh, uh, people or products to actually service those, uh, those requests. Yeah. And you have that, that energy in the company because now the customers are constantly asking, they're using the product even though it's broken, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that uh, 
it is a great in early stages. I think it's a great way to actually mess things up by by overcapitalizing the companies from the belief that. I imagine the the philosophy that you've described earlier of willing being willing to do uh, deals that are um, almost napkin stage deals. You don't see as many oversubscribed rounds because there are not many investors in India, especially who are willing to do that. Actually, globally, there aren't that many investors who are willing to do that. So that almost shields you from that problem, isn't it? Uh, it does. Uh, I mean, I, mean, I should uh, clarify that not all, uh, you know, for investments are, are in that range. Uh, many times they will have uh, a product and, as I said, uh, you know, uh, an initial indication for product market fit as well. But what we have found is that in many cases, it requires a lot of understanding and discussion to figure out what this is this play is about. Uh, and that requires patience. So actually, napkin stage deals don't get done in an instant or a cup of coffee, at least not in our book. Uh, no. the, you actually need to spend time to understand what's going on here. And so in one sense, the entrepreneurs end up choosing the uh, VCs as much as VCs are choosing the entrepreneurs. Because they're trying to understand, hey, uh, do you understand what I'm saying? And many of the deals which we have done, uh, and the entrepreneurs said, hey, look, you know, we couldn't really get our point across to many other, to some other folks which we are talking to. Uh, and that could be for any number of reasons. I and mean, people have different points of view, and that's why you have different VCs out there. Uh, and so I think that understanding, like, what is it that we are after, what is the bet we are actually making, uh, is not as obvious, especially in early stages. And sometimes the entrepreneurs have a general idea, but even they need to uh, refine it uh, for, uh, for, you know, before we go ahead. It's okay to make a bet and be wrong on it, but and, uh, and I feel that it's also okay to be true and wrong quickly. It's a, it's a lot better. Uh, and if you don't have your hypothesis somewhat clear, uh, it's very easy to meander around. Yeah. Well, the other thing that makes it difficult for entrepreneurs who are thinking really uh, contrarian is that the market behaves differently. The, everything, everything signal in the market is against you. So if you're taking a contrarian position, then uh, you know I know I have taken a contrarian position with one million by one million, and and there's <laughs> a lot of people who hate my guts for doing that. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, that's why the conviction of the entrepreneur is like uh, uh, is really important, and you wouldn't be at uh, you know 100,000 folks, 400 podcasts, uh, uh, and interviews until you had a deep conviction about it. Uh, yeah. And I think that uh, that that is a super critical if uh, if you're going to kind of take the uh, take the path not taken. All right, well, great conversation, Tripathi. Thank you for coming and sharing your. Uh, firm's point of view and uh, explaining what you like to invest in. I hope we'll find things uh, to work on together. <laughs>